There's an awful lot of, of our lives as disciples of Jesus is defined by the word obedience. The, the demands and commands of Christ are not optional. There are certain things disciples ought to do. Uh, in fact, the word ought is used around 32 times in the New Testament. And it means that which is necessary or what one must do. Right? And the word ought reflects a, a sense of duty. I read somewhere that ought differs from other forms of language. It is a word without moods or tenses. It is above time and place or circumstance. It symbolizes duty and obligation and comes from the word to owe. So what we ought to do is what we owe to do. The first disciples, the early church, understood this. Standing in the presence of men who had the power to legislate life or death, when told they were forbidden to preach the gospel of Christ, Peter boldly stated, we ought to obey God rather than men. When Peter and the other disciples made this statement, they were saying, in effect, they owed Jesus their obedience. They owed Jesus their very lives. To obey was nothing more than a categorical imperative. If we are going to be faithful to follow Jesus, faithful to move forward following Jesus, to the very end of our lives, to the very end of, of our calling, whatever that might be, we have to understand this. Unfortunately, this was something Israel did not always understand. So open your Bible, Deuteronomy 7, uh, verse 1 through 8. That's what we're going to read. Uh, and I don't know what page it's on. I didn't put it in my notes. So if you'll, when you find that, if you'll stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy 7. Moses speaking. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all those ites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. And thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show any mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughters shalt thou... Uh, shalt, thou shalt not give unto thy sons, neither his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with him. You shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Title of the message is Mission Accomplished. Almost. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come today with a desire to learn. We want to learn from your word. Lord, we have not left the comforts of our house to come out today and, and gather here just for the sake of 
of hearing a lecture, of hearing from me. God, we want to learn and hear from you. Our longing, our desire is you. So, Father, today send your Holy Spirit to take this word and make it living and active into our lives. To strengthen us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, to change us and make us a people who ought to do your will and understand we owe you our very lives. And because of that, there is nothing of all you've said we ought not do. Oh God, today help us to lay aside the cares of life. And I I know, man, that's a big thing sometimes, God. This world is scary. This world is loud and noisy. This world is even right now calling at us to pay attention to it. And this world is often so very hard. And all of these things can make it difficult, Lord, for us to lay aside the cares of life. But that's what we ask you to help us to do today. And in these, this time that we have in the Word, let us be just here and present, focused upon you. Give us attention to your Word and attention to your Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this day. Let our hearts be good ground. The word would sink deep in. Bring forth fruit for your glory. That we would look at our lives and we could see what Jesus has done. That others would look at our lives and they would see something different about us because of Jesus. They would come and they would ask us about the hope we have within us. and We could then tell them about the gracious, good Merciful God in whom we serve. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit, O God. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I would say your words and your ways for your glory. Use this time, O God. Use it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, what you're thinking right now, Deuteronomy is not Joshua. And you're correct. Uh, This passage in Deuteronomy, however, does give us tremendous insight into the section of Joshua where we're at. And we will eventually get to Joshua. And when we do, what we're going to look at today here in Deuteronomy 7 will bear tremendous weight on that passage. And then it will bear tremendous weight on us personally as we seek to move forward following Jesus. Now, Moses speaking tells them... God is going to take them into the promised land. That's what he says in verse 1. They're going to go into the promised land. They're going to possess it. That God's going to work through them to cast out the seven nations who are more and mightier than they are. So God is going to work. He's promising when you get there, God is going to work and be awesome on your behalf. God is going to keep His promise. God is going to work in a mighty way. And all of the nations that are there that your fathers feared, you are going to conquer. However, according to verses 2 and 3 and 5, the people of Israel had a responsibility to God. Something they ought to do when when, when God brought them into the land. When they came into the land... Verse 2, and God delivered them before them. They were to smite them, to utterly destroy them, to make no covenants with them, and show no mercy to them. 
in verse 3, they were not to make any marriages with him. Neither their sons nor their daughters. Now, one thing I want to point out here. This was not a racial prohibition. Right? This says nothing about whether people of different nationalities or ethnicities or skin colors can marry. That is not the point that Moses was making. The point was a racial or a, a it's not a racial prohibition. It's a racial prohibition. It's a religious prohibition. The Canaanites were pagans and they were not to marry pagans. Jews were to marry Jews, people who were devoted to Yahweh. Now, it is significant that it tells us that neither the, the, the daughters were to marry the men nor the sons were to marry the daughters. Because in the culture of the day, it was expected if a woman married a man, she would adopt the culture and the religion of her husband. So it would make sense for a Jewish girl not to marry a Hittite because she would then basically adopt Hittite customs, Hittite religion, and become for all purposes a Hittite. But he also made it went further and said sons were not to marry their daughters. Now a lot of cultures had restrictions against their daughters not marrying men from other religions and other cultures. But only the Jews had one that said neither sons nor daughters were to marry the pagans of the land. And we'll look at why in just a minute. But just understand the nature of the prohibition there. It was religious and not racial. And it was all across the board. Absolutely no Jew was supposed to marry any of the pagans of the land. In verse 5, here's what they were to do to them. They were to destroy their altars break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. Essentially, they were to destroy all the places and objects of worship. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses would elaborate a bit more on what they were supposed to do. And they were to essentially completely destroy them. They were to break them and to burn them. They were to destroy the names and the very memory of these gods from the land. Under no circumstances were the Israelites to inquire of the people of the land and say, how did you worship your God? Because if they sought and inquired how those people worship their gods, then they might be tempted to implement pagan worship into the worship of Yahweh. And this was strictly prohibited. So these are the commands. This is what God told them to do when they went into the land. These commands are all very clear. Right? We don't need a, a deep, long, intense study about what it means to utterly smite them, to wipe them off the face of the earth. That all makes very good sense to us. And it made all very good sense to them. It was all very clear. This is what they were commanded. But these commands can seem, especially in light of our modern sensibilities, a bit harsh or a bit extreme. So God also goes on to explain why he gave them these commands. Now, the why is important for us to see and important for us to understand. Because just as God had reasons for the commands he gave, Jesus has commands, has reasons for the commands he gives. God had reasons then, Jesus has reasons now. And we have to understand that as we begin to look at the commands of Christ. Because they can seem harsh. They can seem extreme. So why? Why did God give these commands? Now, before I get into the why, let me explain something about the people of the land. 
the people of the land were not innocent victims. Right? They were not just good people who were suddenly come upon by an invading nation and destroyed. The iniquity of this people had been growing since the time of Abraham. They were, in the words of one preacher of days gone by, moral monsters. For over 400 years, they had rejected Yahweh in favor of their idols and their sin. And the sins these people were guilty of committing were the grossest sort of sins imaginable. There were occult sins. They were involved in witchcraft, necromancy, and astrology. There were religious sins. They were idolaters. They took part in ritual sacrifices, ritual child sacrifices. And they had took part in ritual sexual immorality. There was just regular sexual sins, homosexuality, incest, adultery, virtually every sort of fornication and sexual sin imaginable. Now that's just some of what you find about these people when you read the Old Testament. So keep the character of these people in your mind as we look at why God gave these commands. Verse 4. So they will turn away thy son from following me. They may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. So God knew mixed marriages would result in the Israelites being drawn into idolatry. Many of the sins of the people were religious in nature. So what would happen is they would marry an idolater, they would be drawn into the idolatry and the immorality of their spouse. But they would end up, it would really kind of what would happen is it would cause such a tension, such a, a strife in, in the unequally yoked marriage that eventually what God anticipates happening is the Israelite, in effort maybe to, to make peace in their family, would begin to compromise a little bit. And it wouldn't be, I don't think God expected it to be, they would go from one day worshiping Yahweh to the next day offering their child as, an, as a child sacrifice. Instead, it would be a minor thing. Well, you worship Yahweh on Saturday, but we do Bell on Friday. Why can't you go to Bell worship with me on Friday and then I'll go to Yahweh worship with you on Saturday? Well, why, can't we, why can't we talk about Yahweh some and Bell some? And it would be a, a gradual compromise that would eventually lead the people of God away. This was the same reason they were to destroy all the pagan places of worship and wipe the memory of these gods from the land. If there was any memory of the gods of the land left, they would be tempted to say, well, what did they do? I mean, we've always sang these same sort of songs of Zion. They're old and they're old-fashioned. Well, what is the new thing? That the bell worshippers were doing. How were they doing things differently? That might be more exciting. Kind of refresh us a little bit. And then they would take the idol worship and they would bring it into the worship of Yahweh. And it would be an abomination. It would not in any way be something that brought glory and honor to the God of Israel. And if they were drawn into idolatry, it would bring destruction upon them. The anger of the Lord would be kindled against them in verse 4. He would destroy them suddenly. God didn't want that to happen. I mean, God had just delivered them from Egyptian slavery. He didn't deliver them for the purpose of bringing them out and then destroying them. He didn't choose them from all the nations of the earth to bring them out and then to destroy them. It wasn't His will or His want 
to pour judgment and punishment out upon them. He was trying to spare them from this. Another reason they were to obey God and God gave these commandments in verse 6 is they were a holy people unto the Lord. The Lord had chosen them to be a special people unto Himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. They were to be holy. And holy means more than just moral. It means that. But it also means devoted, separate. They were to be different than every other nation in the world. And their difference among every other nation in the world was to be because they were devoted to the Lord their God who had chosen them. God had chosen them. For himself, you are mine. And they were then to say, yes, Lord, we are yours. We will follow you. We will obey you. We will do your will. No matter what that will may be. Why had God chosen them? Verse 7, another reason. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people. You were fewest of people, but the Lord loved you. God Loved them. All of these commands flowed out of the fact God loved them. Since He loved them, He did not want them to worship other gods. Since He loved them, He did not want them to be drawn into the wickedness and the immorality of the people of the land. Since He loved them, He did not want to punish them. And so He gave them commands which if followed would spare them the hurt Heartache and wrath which came upon those who did what the people of the land would do. In his love, he wanted to spare them from what he knew would happen if they did not follow his commands. I think in some ways we could say it's like parents with their children. I mean, the rules we give our kids, they aren't just arbitrary. They're for their own good. We love them. We know more than them. We want what's best for them. Now if we, as fallen sinful people, are that way, how much more is our Heavenly Father that way? Our perfect and holy Heavenly Father. All of God's commands are an expression of His love and His desire for what is best for us. And then finally, the last reason. It says that the Lord had sworn to bring them out of the land and had had redeemed them out of the house of the bondage uh, in the hand of Pharaoh. He had done great and mighty things in order to deliver them from Egyptian slavery. God had delivered them from slavery, harsh slavery, endless slavery. With signs, wonders, and demonstrations of His great power. What is the proper response to a great and awesome God who alone can thwart the greatest nation on the earth? What is the proper response to a God so mighty He can bring the mightiest nation on earth to their knees to such an extent that they not only allow their slave labor to leave, but they tell them here... This is the most valuable stuff I have. You take it and you go. I'll give you everything. Go in my house. You can have any of it. It's it's yours. You want this? Take it and go. Just, Just leave. 
God delivered them with such might and such power that in the process the Egyptians were plundered and the Israelites were prospered. What is the proper response to a God who does that just because He can and just because He loves you? Well, the only proper response is to be holy unto the Lord your God. To devote yourself to doing His will. And to let this devotion and this consecration be seen in obeying His commands. So why did God give the commands He gave? We could summarize it like this. God loved them. God saved them. God wanted what was best. All of the commands God gave everywhere, but particularly here, those three reasons. He loved them, He had saved them, and He wanted what was best for them. All of this was clear. It was all clear what He had done, what He had said. It was clear why He had said it. So we're in Joshua. They've crossed into the land. What did they actually do? I hope you brought your sword drill Bible. We've got a lot of places to turn. Turn to Joshua 15, 63. Thankfully, once you get to Joshua, they're all really close together, though. Joshua 15 and 63. It's talking about the, the cities of Judah. Joshua, here's what's happened, where we're at. They've come into the land. The main part of the battle is over. We saw that... Last week, Caleb was given his mountain to go and take. So Joshua is not leading one massive, large campaign any longer. Instead, what Joshua is now doing is going, Okay, Luke, you're the head of Judah. You guys go take that. All right. Red, you're from Naphtali. You go over there. And he's dividing it by lots and sending them out. And what they're supposed to do is then continue the campaign. So Red will take his people of Naphtali and he will go over here and he will do what God said in Deuteronomy 7 to the people who are left over here. Luke will take the people of Judah, he will go over here and he will do what God said to them. And every nation will go and do it. And so they get that assignment, they know what they're supposed to do and here's what happens. Here's Judah in Luke, oh no, Joshua 15, 63. That's for the Jebusites. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell the children of Judah unto this day. The people of Joseph, chapter 16 and verse 10. And they drove not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt among the Ephraimites unto this day and served under tribute. That's Ephraim. And then if you look in Joshua 17, verse 12 and 13, you see the territory of Manasseh. And the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in the land. Yet it came to pass, and the children of Israel were waxed strong. They put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. Now, now jump to the book of Judges, chapter 1. Kind of a summary of what we've already seen. Judges 1, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants 
of the battle because they had chariots. Verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. And then chapter 1, verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor Tanik and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ephraim and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megado and her towns. But the Canaanites would dwell in the land. And then verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. Verse 29. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Naholol. Verse 31. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants. Verse 32. For they did not drive them out. Verse 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anath. And so what they did was, from what I can tell, my math is correct, nine of the twelve did not do all God told them to do. They, they were almost completely obedient. They almost did all God told them to do. But not quite. Now they did do quite a few things with the people of the land. Some of them made them servants. Put them to tribute. That's what that means. So what would happen is they ruled over them. And every so often, like say once a month, a certain amount of money or produce would be expected. And they would come to the people who ruled over them and they would give it to them. So they were servants and they were subservient to Israel, but they were still there. Worshipping their gods. Some made unofficial peace treaties. Just live and let live. Right? You don't bother us. We won't bother you. We just have nothing to do with each other. And then there's the tribe of Dan, which did nothing. They completely left their area that was allotted to them and roamed for years. The whole book of Judges, they roamed the land with no place to call their own until Judges 17 and 18, and they go and kill people who is a part of a land that is not their part of their allotment. These people all had the resources of God at their disposal. The God who made the sun to stand still and rain hailstones down from the sky. The God who parted the Red Sea and parted the Jordan River. The God who had promised every place the sole of your feet shall tread as land I have given you. All they had to do was go and take the land. And yet, they only accomplished a part of their mission. So what was the result of their partial obedience? Turn to Judges 3. Verse 5. The children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. Now, this isn't Joshua's group. Joshua and his people die. They are faithful to the Lord all the years of Joshua. These are Joshua's kids. Actually, maybe his grandkids. I don't know how old Joshua's kids were when they took the land. But this is the first generation to be raised in the promised land. 
And they are, here they are, they're dwelling among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They're, they're living among all those Ike people God said to kill, to push out, and to not make any leagues or marriages with them or, or care about what their gods are doing and destroy them. So what did they do is they lived among them. And they took their daughters to be their wives. And they gave their daughters to their sons. They intermarried. Now they've lived with them. And they've been around them. And they started to say things like, well, the Canaanites aren't such bad people. I mean, they're, they're good moral people. I mean, they, they worship a God. That they're devoted to Him. That they're really not that different than us. We should intermarry. And then they begin to serve their gods. Oh, hey, hey, honey, I'll go with you to to go worship Yahweh on Saturday. If you'll come worship Chemosh with me on Thursday, can we do that? Okay, yeah, good. Let's go worship together. As a family, we'll just worship together like that. And the children of Israel. Did evil in the sight of the Lord their God. Well, honey, you're already worshiping Chemosh. There's just a few other things. I mean, you can do more than just sing a few songs to Chemosh, can't you? I mean, a part of our, our culture as Hivites is we, we do these sort of things. Don't you want to come on, be there with my mom and dad and our family? Just come and, and be with us. And they forgot the Lord their God. And served Balaam and the groves. Essentially, what happened is all the things God said would happen, happened. They lived among them. They intermarried. They began to worship with them. And they began to take part in their sins. And so what was the result of that? Verse 8. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hand of a king whose name I cannot pronounce of Mesopotamia and the children of Israel served that king for eight years. God gave them over to temporal judgment. Every single thing God said would happen, happened. Despite God's love for them, despite God's deliverance of them, despite God wanting the best for them, they chose something else. And they chose it initially just by not fully obeying God. Not doing every single thing God said to do. They did most of it. They did the biggest part of it. But they didn't do it all. And it led to their downfall. And it led to their destruction. So what is the key truth? What do we need to learn from their example? We must completely obey Jesus. If we are to move forward following Jesus. We must completely obey Jesus if we're going to move forward following Jesus. Now the commands of Jesus 
are just as clear for us as they were for the Israelites. Let me just toss you out a couple. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. I mean, we could do a whole sermon on that, but it's pretty clear, isn't it? We know exactly what it means. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. And I have to completely obey that. Not just a part of it, and not just a few days a week, but but I must completely, always, daily obey that. Or, Or another one. Go make disciples of all nations. Again, we could easily, we could study a month, a month of Sundays on what it means to make disciples of all nations, but we we understand the essence of it. As disciples of Jesus, we are responsible for getting the gospel to the nations, the nations in our community and the nations who are far off. And we're to do all of that. We're not to just say, well, I just want people like me. Or I I just don't feel called to do that. None of that matters. We are to make disciples of all nations. And if we're to move forward following Jesus, we have to completely obey that. Jesus has said, turn the other cheek. Again, preach a sermon on it. But we know what it means, don't we? And if we want to move forward following Jesus, we have to completely obey that. Jesus said to to love your enemies. Again, could preach on it for years. But it's pretty simple. It's pretty clear. Be a peacemaker. That's what Jesus has said. That's what He commanded us to do. Not be a strife stirrer. Not be a troll. Not try to make things worse. Make peace. Just look at our world. Doesn't our world need more peacemakers, more loving your enemies, more turning the other cheek than it does most other things that the world has given out? And and that's what we're to do. We we are to be the people that do that. That's the command. And it's clear. And the reasons for these commands are the same. Jesus loves us. And He wants us to experience His best. And He wants us, and He has saved us. Jesus loves us, saves us, and wants us to experience His best. And His best, and His love, and His salvation, all of those things are found in denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. Those things are found in making disciples of all nations, of loving our enemies, of turning the other cheek, of being peacemakers. These are the commands some of the commands of Jesus. These are the reasons He has given them to us. But there is one command in particular, I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about. And it's a command that if we don't get this one right, the others just don't matter. Here's the command. He went preaching, saying, time is fulfilled, kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So every one of us 
should hear Jesus saying to us, repent you. You repent and you believe the gospel. This is the most basic command of Jesus. You repent and you believe the gospel. This is a command to place all of your faith in the finished work of Jesus as your only source of redemption or righteousness or salvation. Of course, the basic message of the gospel we're to believe is that Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. He was dead for three days and then He rose again on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't separate them. If someone truly believes the gospel, they will repent of their sins. And the only reason anyone would genuinely repent of their sins is because they have believed the gospel. These two go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. It's how Jesus preached it. It's how the Apostle Paul preached it. It's how the Bible declares it. And while this is clearly laid out in Scripture, And again, I could spend a lot of time talking about what it means to repent and believe, but we understand the gist of that. It's clearly laid out. We see examples all through Scripture and and really in life of people who almost obeyed Jesus. Almost completely obeyed Jesus. Jesus told one man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He wasn't far, but he wasn't in either. One man heard the Apostle Paul preach and he liked to hear him. Even though listening to the Apostle Paul preach made him tremble with conviction. But he never followed that conviction to Jesus and to the cross. He was convicted of his sin. He was aware of his need for Jesus. But he never repented of his sin and believed the gospel. Another man heard the Apostle Paul preach and applied to him almost... Thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost, but not quite. Now the temptation, because we know people like this. These aren't just nameless, faceless people from the Bible. We know people who can give right Bible answers, which is what the guy who was not far from the kingdom of God did. We know people, if we were to ask what, if at NCS we called doctrinal drills, they could answer doctrinal drills. They know the right Bible answers. And yet they're, they're not far from the kingdom of God. But we know people who when we talk about the standards of righteousness and eternity, it, it makes them tremble. They're a little bit afraid of what's coming. And we know people who are almost persuaded. I'm just, I'm just right at the line. And so our temptation with these we read about in Scripture, those we know is to say, surely not being, being not far from the kingdom is actually in the kingdom. Surely being almost persuaded is close enough. Surely someone who trembles under the weight of their sin has repented and believes in Jesus. But no, that's actually not the case. Those are people who almost completely obey Jesus, but don't quite cross crossed, crossed the line. Not far from the kingdom is still outside the kingdom, and therefore is still unsaved. Being convicted by the Word and the Spirit means God's drawing, 
But it doesn't mean they've come and been saved. Almost persuaded is still completely lost. Unless you think I'm being overly stern, I want you to consider these words of Jesus. And I want to use the words of Jesus because often we're told Jesus was just like, we're all okay. Just love people. That's all that matters. But is it? Is that really the way Jesus was? Look, look at what he said here in Matthew. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Or or this statement by Jesus. Strive to enter at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. And once the master of the house has risen up and hath shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast told in our streets. But he will say unto you, I know you not. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Do you notice the similarities in these passages? People who were close to being saved, but weren't quite saved. They didn't really do the will of Jesus. They didn't strive to ensure they entered by the straight and narrow gate. At times they were close to Jesus. At times they they heard Him preach and they were with Him at times where He was. Both would have claimed to be saved. Both had done works in His name. And yet both were still workers of iniquity. They fully expected to be welcomed into heaven by hearing, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And yet what they heard was, Depart from me. And also notice, in both cases, it's many and not a few. Our culture today is filled with people who are not far From the kingdom of God. Who tremble under the conviction of the word and the spirit. Who are almost persuaded to become Christians. They're convinced heaven will be their home. Despite the fact they don't do the father's will. And they are consistently workers of iniquity. Who live in unrepentant sin. And they've never strived to enter the narrow gate. And on the day of judgment, they will each and every one here depart from me. I never knew you. The whole lot of them. And I don't mean to sound unloving and unkind. But I need to be clear. The whole lot of them will split hell wide open. And the smoke of their torments will rise forever and ever and ever. Because being close to the kingdom is not enough. 
Being almost persuaded is not enough. Being convicted of your sins is not enough. Saying to yourself, well, I go to church and I do a few good deeds is not enough. Understand, we must do the will of our Father. We must enter by the straight and the narrow gate. And if we are workers of iniquity, we are not part of the kingdom of God. And the question each and every one of us must answer is, is this me? Am I near the kingdom but not in the kingdom? Am I almost persuaded but not fully embraced Jesus? Do I confuse conviction and fear about eternity with confirmation from the Spirit that I'm saved? Am I convinced I'm going to heaven when I die despite the fact I don't do what God says? Despite the fact I do what God says not do? Despite the fact I have never even put forth any effort to strive to enter at the straight and narrow gates? There are other commands Jesus has given, and I could have spent all day on that. This is the main one. Because if we don't get right, repent you and believe the gospel, then it doesn't matter if we deny ourselves and take up our cross. It doesn't matter if we work to make disciples of all nations. It doesn't matter if we turn the other cheek. It doesn't matter if we love our enemies. If we're wrong on you, repent. And believe the gospel. We're eternally wrong. Hell will be our home. That's why scripture tells us. To examine yourselves. To see whether you be in the faith. To prove your own selves. Know ye not yourselves. How Jesus Christ is in you. Except you be reprobate. Notice what scripture doesn't say. It doesn't say that you come to an altar to pray. It doesn't say where you baptized. It doesn't say do you go to church. It doesn't say are you moral. It doesn't say are your parents Christians. It says examine your life. Prove yourselves that Jesus is in you. And... If you can't see proof of Jesus in you, recognize that means you're a reprobate. You're not saved. So the question, how is your life different because of Jesus? How is my life different because of Jesus? What actions do we take just because of Jesus? But not because we're older. There are things I did in my 20s I won't do now in my late 40s because my body can't handle it. That's not necessarily a sign of either wisdom or sanctification. I'm just older now. What do you do that's because of Jesus and not because you've gotten married? You know, there are things you can do as a single person you can't do as a married person. But that's not a sign of sanctification or salvation. What do you do just because of Jesus and not because you've emotionally matured. Hopefully 16-year-olds act differently than 20-something-year-olds. But that's not necessarily a sign of salvation and sanctification. What do you do just because of your faith in Jesus and not because of any external circumstances? Just 
because of Jesus. What is different in your character and how you act and how you treat people? Just because of Jesus. And while what those things are will vary from person to person, they should be there for everyone who can prove Jesus in their own lives. Every person who has been born again and is Spirit-filled will live differently just because of Jesus. They will have a different morality because of Jesus. They will treat people differently because of Jesus. They will have different priorities because of Jesus. They will react to stressors different because of Jesus. They will be different because of Jesus. And if there is no difference in your life, I want you to understand the point of this message isn't try harder. Or do more. Because trying harder and doing more won't help. They will fail. The great need in your life isn't to try harder and to do more. It is to obey Jesus, to repent you and believe the gospel. To make the intentional decision. God is right about sin. God is right about your sin. And you've been wrong. It is to turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. Grabbing onto the cross and saying, only here am I saved. Not because mom and dad are Christians. Not because I try to be a good person. Not because I've gone to church all my life. Not because I was baptized or prayed a prayer. Because of Jesus, I'm saved. And that belief, that repentance will lead you to live and be different. The change of life aspect is often underestimated in our day, but it is not in Scripture. Repenting and believing is far more than believing there's a God out there somewhere. It's far more than believing a man named Jesus existed. It is believing Jesus died for your sins. It's personal. My sins sent Jesus to the cross. That Jesus truly, literally rose from the dead. And His death and His resurrection are the only hope we have. This sort of belief causes us requires us to let go of our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency. If there is anything in you that says, I'm good enough, I've earned it myself, there is something I played, I helped me and God did it, dear friend, repent and believe the Gospel, you're not saved. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes our salvation necessary. This is what we must do to obey Jesus. This is the first step of obedience we must take. Repent of our sins and believe the gospel. So if you don't see any difference in your life because of Jesus, 
Don't treat this as no big deal because Jesus did not. The Apostle Paul did not. The Apostle John did not. God does not. I am pleading with you today to examine yourself. Prove your own self that Jesus is among you. And if by chance you see Jesus is not recognized, that means you are reprobate, you are not saved, and you must repent, and you must believe. So I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. Judgment Day is coming. And it is coming far sooner than we imagine or we think. And on that day we will stand before Jesus. And the books will be opened. And the book of life will be opened. And He'll go down the road to where your name and my name should be. And at that moment we will hear one of two things. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Or we will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me. There is no third choice. There is no other, there is no other destination for eternity. God is dealing with you right now, revealing to you you're not saved. You have not obeyed Jesus in repenting and believing. Trust me when I say this is your most urgent need today. Nothing else matters in this moment but you getting that right. If you say, I, I know I need to, I haven't followed through, I haven't obeyed Jesus in repenting and believing, would you raise your hand? Just a way to say, I, I know. I'm not there and, and I want to come to Jesus. I'm turning to Him right now. I'm going to pray. As I pray, you pray. You talk to God. Holy Father, we love You today. And Lord, I know the message today was hard, but How wonderful is it Your Word is clear. How wonderful is it we were here today to give the opportunity to hear this message. And Lord, none of us in here today could leave and say, well, I never knew. I I didn't know I needed to repent and believe the Gospel. I I didn't know I couldn't be a worker of iniquity and still go to heaven. I, I didn't know I had to do the Father's will. We know. Your Word and Your Spirit have spoken clearly to us and given us the light we need to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. How wonderful are You to us, O God, to give us this opportunity. And O God, let us make the most of it, each and every one of us. And Lord, if we're here and we say, I know I've repented, I know I've believed, then dear God, let us take what we've learned here And let it give us a passion and a burden for those around us before before it's too late. 
We are all surrounded by people who are not far from the kingdom. We are all surrounded by people who are almost persuaded. We are all surrounded by people who tremble at their sin and the thought of standing before you, but none of those people are saved. Let the clarity of your word give us the courage to talk to them about you. Let not our loved ones and our friends and those we're around on the regular basis, let them not die and go to hell without ever hearing from us. You must repent and you must believe the gospel. Make us a church and a people that care about souls, win souls for your glory. Make a difference in this community for the cause of Christ, we ask in His name. Amen.